In our previous two episodes, we chronicled the rise of Richard Nixon from his humble beginnings in California to the presidency of the United States. We also covered his realist-based foreign policy views and the agonizing decisions he made to end the war in Vietnam. As his second term started, the Vietnam War was winding down, and Nixon could now turn to grander ambitions. He hoped for nothing less than to be the architect of a new world order. That story is the subject of this episode of This American President. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Previously, I talked about Nixon and Kissinger's realism and their approach to the Cold War. Vietnam was a major headache, but it was just one front in the broader struggle against communism. Casting a shadow over the situation in Vietnam were the two great communist states, the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. While Nixon tried to find a solution to the Vietnam problem, he was also changing America's broader Cold War strategy. By this time, the Cold War had been going on for a couple of decades, and as we discussed in our first Nixon episode, America was far more aware of its political, military, and economic limitations. The Soviets had caught up in many ways with the United States, especially in terms of nuclear weapons. The arms race was expensive. Each side had an incentive to spend more and more to counter the other. But there was also a desire for detente, a lessening intentions, And that went all the way back to Eisenhower. Kennedy and Khrushchev agreed to a test ban treaty in 1963. Johnson also was hoping for some sort of limitation on nuclear weapons. But he was preoccupied with Vietnam and domestic issues. Any hope of detente during his administration died when the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968 to suppress a reform movement there. But the desire for a new path forward remained. And it's not totally surprising. In an era where both sides pointed thousands of nuclear weapons at each other, 
regardless of how much Americans hated communism. It's not hard to see why people felt the need to reduce the threat of nuclear war somehow. They feared having another nuclear crisis, like the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. The idea of going to the brink of nuclear war again was too terrifying. The Soviets, too, were feeling the heat. They were no less terrified of nuclear war. After all, they had just as much to lose as America did. Global nuclear destruction wouldn't have been good for anyone. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviets built up their military to achieve parity with the United States. But it was also a heavy burden on their economy, which was far less diversified and dynamic than the American economy. They were falling behind the United States in terms of technology, underscored symbolically when the United States landed six-man missions on the moon from 1969 to 1972, definitively winning the space race. The Soviets had enjoyed superiority in space in the early 1960s, but their moon rocket, the N-1, kept blowing up during launch. The limitations of a command economy began to show. And then there was another factor. If the Soviets could sit down with the Americans and get some sort of agreement, it would give them a sense of legitimacy on the world stage. The Soviets needed legitimacy. They were already experiencing problems with the other major communist power, China. And although the two countries were supposedly allies, China and the Soviet Union were now at odds. They shared a long border, and that lent itself to skirmishes and disagreements over boundaries. They disagreed on which side was sticking to the truest form of Marxism. And they competed for leadership of the communist world. Many in the Soviet Politburo, the governing council of the Soviet Union, feared that if they didn't engage with the rest of the world, they would be threatened, not just by the West, but also its neighbor, China. All of this just happened to fit perfectly with Nixon's thinking. His sense of realism told him that a new relationship with the Soviet Union might be beneficial for global stability. It also fit with his goals in Vietnam. The Soviets and the Communist Chinese were the big brother communist states. Vietnam was a little brother communist state. Vietnam received support in some form from its big brothers. Nixon hoped that a new relationship with the Soviets and the Chinese could benefit America in Vietnam. Perhaps, he felt, Moscow could pressure the North Vietnamese to come to an agreement, and that would allow the United States to save face. It was a bold and risky strategy. It assumed that the Soviets were willing to bargain in good faith, and that it actually had real influence in Hanoi. But by engaging with the Soviets, Nixon would be risking granting the Soviets legitimacy. When we think of the lessons of appeasement in the 1930s, it's fair to ask, could diplomatic relations with a totalitarian government lead to anything good? Would any concessions be seen by Moscow's weakness? Would they embolden the Soviets to expand further? These were fair questions to ask, especially since Moscow aggressively suppressed dissent in Czechoslovakia so recently, and was in the process of consolidating a major nuclear buildup. It was a gamble, but the kind of gamble Nixon and Kissinger loved. Remember, they were born strategists, willing to take massive risks. They had great confidence in their own abilities to negotiate, to sit down with the Soviets without giving up America's strategic interests. 
and coming up with agreements with the Soviets would give Nixon a chance to achieve the title he described in his inaugural address, that of peacemaker. Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson all hoped for detente with the Soviets. Nixon was willing to take the chances necessary to be the first president to achieve it and forever alter the course of the Cold War. But as they say, it takes two to tango. And on the other side of the equation was Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev, who had been in power since 1964, when Nikita Khrushchev had been ousted. Khrushchev had implemented reforms in the wake of Stalin, but sometimes he had acted erratically and unpredictably, getting his country involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis fiasco. Brezhnev's priority upon taking office was stability and achieving nuclear parity with the United States. But with all of the disagreements happening in China, perhaps, perhaps Brezhnev would be willing to talk. Very early in the administration, back in February 1969, Nixon had sent Kissinger to open up a back channel with the Soviets. Kissinger met secretly with Anatoly Dobrynin, the Soviet ambassador to the United States, to discuss a new direction in U.S.-Soviet relations. As I said previously, Nixon and Kissinger wished to implement a new policy called linkage, linking progress in one area of foreign policy to another. In this case, they promised an improvement with the Soviets in relations, say in arms control, if the Soviets would pressure North Vietnam to come to the table. The Soviets rejected this and claimed that they had limited influence over Hanoi. This was a disappointment for Nixon and Kissinger. But the United States and the Soviet Union decided to focus on strategic arms. By then, both sides had about a thousand nuclear weapons pointing at each other. The Soviets had a slight advantage in intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBMs. But the U.S. had a huge lead in long-range bombers and nuclear submarines. And other systems were being developed. The Johnson administration had initiated an anti-ballistic missile system, or ABM system, called Sentinel. The idea was for America to have a defensive system to shoot down any Soviet ICBMs headed its way. Nixon initiated his own program, called Safeguard. There was a debate about whether an ABM system was worth it, it was expensive, and hitting an incoming ICBM was very hard to do, and unproven. ABM systems have been compared to hitting one bullet with another bullet. Besides, even if America could strike an incoming ICBM, the Soviets could just unleash several ICBMs at once to overwhelm the system. Some historians believe that Nixon didn't think his safeguard system would work, but felt that it could be a helpful bargaining tool. Nixon once again forever being the strategist. But there was another development in strategic weapons, MIRVs, which stood for Multiple Independent Targeting Reentry Vehicles. The idea here was that instead of just putting one nuclear warhead on top of a missile, you could put several, and each one would be targeted to different locations. These MIRVs were the stuff of nuclear nightmares. Imagine one missile doing the job of three or four missiles, or who knows how much more. The first American MIRV was the Minuteman III, and it had three warheads. It was only a matter of time before that number would expand. Many experts feared that MIRVs would escalate the arms race. According to historian Melvin Small, Nixon feared MIRVs were destabilizing, but he felt that this, along with the ABM program, were key pieces of leverage on the Soviets. 
and MIRVs could increase the odds that the United States could overwhelm any defensive system the Soviets might put into place. In June of 1969, Nixon announced the U.S. would conduct tests on developing MIRVs. The Soviets would soon develop their own MIRV, the SS-9. Regardless of these advancements, both sides still wanted to reduce the costs of the arms race. So in November of 1969, talks began between American and Soviet officials in Helsinki, Finland. They were called the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, or SALT. There was also hope for a summit at the highest level between Nixon and Brezhnev. Although there was much optimism about the dawn of a new era in the Cold War, the negotiations quickly got bogged down in the technicalities of nuclear weapons and delivery systems, as well as the ongoing American effort in Vietnam. Things between America and the Soviet Union stood at a bit of a standstill. Fortunately for Nixon, he had a trick up his sleeve, and it had to do with China. As I've said many times, Nixon was a realist, and you can see this most clearly in his views on China. Just for a little background, going back to the 1920s, the communists and the pro-Western nationalists fought a civil war for control of China. When the communist leader Mao Zedong won the civil war in 1949, the nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek fled to the island of Formosa, now known as Taiwan. From that time on, the United States only recognized the government in Taiwan as the true legitimate China, giving it a seat as one of the major powers in the United Nations. A powerful interest group called the China Lobby pressured the United States to support Taiwan, but as the decades went on, many felt that it was unrealistic to maintain the position that Taiwan was still the true China and to keep ignoring the People's Republic of China on the mainland especially since the latter consisted of hundreds of millions of people, much greater than the population of Taiwan. Many anti-communists continue to believe that the United States had a moral obligation to support Taiwan, but Richard Nixon was a realist. Even before he was president, he talked about China playing a greater role in the world. Remember, Nixon and Kissinger believed in the balance of power. Yeah, Taiwan was great and all, but they believed that the world would be more stable if power was balanced, and the Chinese, with its mammoth population and rising status, could play a role balancing other powers, especially the Soviet Union. Throughout the Mao era, China was relatively closed off from the world, and it experienced major upheavals. The vast majority of China was agricultural. In the late 1940s and early 1960s, Mao tried to industrialize the nation rapidly, in a program called the Great Leap Forward. It was a total disaster. It led to famine and widespread starvation. Historians estimate that several tens of millions of Chinese died. And then, in the mid to late 1960s, Mao sought to purge the nation of quote-unquote rightist elements. In other words, those not truly committed to his brand of communism. What resulted was the Cultural Revolution where hundreds of thousands, if not millions more, perished in a virtual civil war. Mao was the architect of some of the biggest atrocities in all of history. He was a ruthless leader who created an intense cult of personality that made him the most powerful man in the country. By the late 1960s, his authority in China remained absolute, but he was getting old. He was now in his mid-70s, and his health was weakening. 
Up until then, many policymakers in both the United States and the Soviet Union considered Mao an extreme radical, even by Moscow's standards. While the Soviets feared nuclear war, Mao had once said that China could survive a nuclear war, and he shrugged off the possibility of hundreds of millions of Chinese being killed. To many, China was a massive version of what North Korea is today, a closed-off state adhering to an extreme version of communism. But Nixon sensed an opening. The Soviets had long been China's big brother in the communist world. Both looked upon the United States as the enemy. After 1949, the Soviets gave the Chinese aid, and even discussed sharing nuclear technology. But the honeymoon didn't last. As I said, there were border skirmishes between the two nations. When Khrushchev turned his country away from Stalinism in the 1950s, even denouncing Stalin in a speech, Mao saw this as a great betrayal of Marxist thought. A major break happened when the Soviets, fearful of China's radicalism, decided to withhold nuclear technology from them. China felt like it was being treated more like a vassal state than a peer. President Lyndon Johnson was aware of the strains in the Soviet-Chinese relationship and hoped to exploit them, but he was too preoccupied with other matters. Many Americans continued to see all communist nations as a single bloc. But by the late 1960s, a major change had occurred that would have astonished them. The Chinese now viewed the Soviet Union as a bigger enemy than the United States. This was a remarkable turnaround. For decades, Beijing had attacked the United States as the evil imperialist superpower. But now, it viewed the Soviet Union as communist in name only. The Chinese believed that the Soviets were just as imperialist as the United States. After all, it had imposed its will over Eastern Europe and was now engaged in skirmishes on China's border. In China's eyes, there were two imperialist superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, but it was far worse to be an imperialist nation posing as a communist one. You get a sense of this idea when Mao told his doctor that he liked rightists, one of the most ironic statements he ever uttered. Mao had spent much of his career eliminating rightists, or quote-unquote imperialists, or those he suspected of having pro-Western sympathies. But now, apparently, he preferred to deal with them because, quote, they say what they really think, not like the leftists, who say one thing and mean another. Before long, Mao and his prime minister, Zhou Enlai, began to realize that normalizing relations with the United States could give them greater leverage against Moscow. And Nixon and Kissinger felt that relations with the Chinese would also give them leverage against the Soviets, which would be helpful in the SALT negotiations. And just as in the case with the Soviets, Nixon and Kissinger hoped that the Chinese could help pressure North Vietnam to come to the table with the U.S. The Chinese and the Vietnamese did have a long history going back centuries. The stage was set for an establishment of cordial relations between the United States, the most powerful nation in the world, and the People's Republic of China, the most populous. Kissinger signaled the change, saying, quote, We have always made it clear that we have no permanent enemies, and that we will judge other countries, and specifically countries like communist China, on the basis of their actions, 
and not on the basis of their domestic ideology. So Nixon and Kissinger began putting feelers out to China. Nixon eased up on travel and trade restrictions with Beijing. He then canceled patrols in the Taiwan Strait by the 7th Fleet. Then Nixon decided to go through a key partner, Pakistan. In October of 1970, Nixon gave Pakistan's leader, Yahya Khan, a message for Beijing's leaders, indicating a desire to start talks. It was the first time there had been any communications between the United States and China at that level in decades. Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai wasn't totally sold. He pointed out that American support for Taiwan remained a problem. But Nixon and Kissinger were undaunted, and they continued their courtship of the communist Chinese. They ended all travel restrictions for Americans to go to China in March of 1971. Around this time, China's leaders had been discussing what a new relationship with America might do for them. They felt that they might be able to negotiate some sort of settlement of the Taiwan issue with recognition of China's rule over that island. Perhaps they could also obtain grain shipments from the U.S. Maybe they could negotiate America's withdrawal from Asia, leaving Beijing as the dominant player in the world's biggest continent. And they also felt that a new relationship with America would help them in their own Cold War against the Soviets. Yes, it seemed, talks with the U.S. could have some real upsides. In April of 1971, the Chinese finally responded. First, they invited the U.S. ping-pong team to China, giving rise to the term ping-pong diplomacy. The visit ended up going well. The American team and the media that followed them were the first Americans to visit Beijing since 1949. Then, on April 27th, Zhou Enlai sent Nixon a message. It was the message that he had been waiting to hear. The People's Republic of China would accept an envoy from the United States, perhaps even Nixon himself. The question for Nixon and Kissinger was how to go about it. In this April 1971 recording, Nixon and Kissinger discuss relations with China. You get a sense here that they saw the issue through multiple lenses, that a trip to China could help them in their policies towards the Soviet Union and could even give them a political advantage over the Democrats back home. No, I think of this one. Sure, the Democrats are going to start yelling now. They're going to come up uh, with 50 hot gimmicks, but we are so far ahead of sure. them. What they're coming, what they'll come up with, Henry, is why don't we now admit them to the UN? Why don't we, uh, why don't we uh, uh, recognize and so forth? Uh, well, that's all premature. That's, uh, and, and also, Mr. President, we don't want to let that be the debate. That helped us with the Russian game. I think so. Because if the Russians see that the Democrats are more hog-wild vis-a-vis China than you are... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but it's then, true. Then they have much less of an incentive to bring them in. They already don't trust them on the Middle East. Then if China, they also turn out to be a disaster. True, true, true. So I think... Uh, my major worry is that we'll that if we if we get too eager that the Chinese will start going back into a shell. And that's by the way you've played it and I agree. That's where I the agree. Democrats I don't, do damage. I sure as hell don't expect to get eager at all with the Chinese. Oh no you unless, unless the Russian thing drops. Then then the Chinese may want to be eager. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, and we will too. 
Thatcher. We can't just assume then, well, we'll wait till 1974. Oh, no. See, oh, God. No. This is one of those things where... Where I don't believe I think I think our Chinese game Henry should be played exactly as it's being played, very cool and aloof, and uh, yet uh, the doors open. Now you walk in, kids, and your move, Mr. President. I must tell you. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. As I said in our first Nixon episode, he and Kissinger centralized American foreign policy decision-making, and they also shrouded most of their decisions in secrecy. They were constantly worried about leaks in the administration, and were obsessed with keeping their actions covert. Well, in this case, as they planned engagement with China, they felt that secrecy was absolutely necessary. They wanted to make an opening to the Chinese but they knew that if the effort was made public, it would provoke a great deal of controversy and public debate that might sink the whole thing before it even started. There were a lot of people who would be impacted and concerned by a change in policy on China. This included anti-communist politicians at home and allies abroad. Taiwan, of course, would be affected, but also Europe with their own ties to Asia. And Japan was a close ally of the United States in the Pacific. They had long-simmering tensions with the Chinese. An American rapprochement with the Chinese could be seen as a major setback for both Taiwan and Japan, if you looked at the situation as a zero-sum game. They feared the possibility that their closest ally would be cozying up to their adversary. South Korea and many other nations also had interests that would be affected. Perhaps, if an opening could be made and a summit arranged between the United States and China before anyone knew about it, Nixon could present the world with a fait accompli that no one in the world could do anything about. In July of 1971, Nixon sent Kissinger in a secret mission to China. This was done through an elaborate plan where Kissinger went to Pakistan and then used a plane procured by the Pakistani government to secretly continue on to China. Once in China, Kissinger met with Chinese Prime Minister Zhou Enlai. It was the first meeting between top American and Chinese officials in decades. Kissinger had been national security advisor for a couple years at this point, and he was dealing with a seasoned veteran of diplomacy. According to historian Margaret Macmillan, Zhou tried to throw Kissinger off his game, sometimes unleashing diatribes against American imperialism, and other times being the polite and courteous host. Kissinger may have been a relative newcomer to diplomacy, but he held his own, defending America's positions on the issues. They agreed that Nixon would visit the following year. And to build trust, Kissinger even took the extraordinary step of providing the Chinese with intelligence on Soviet positions at the Chinese border. Throughout the rest of 1971, 
Both sides prepared for the summit. After Kissinger's meeting with Zhou, he was giddy with excitement and not a little boastful, reportedly saying, quote, I got everything I wanted. It was a total success on my part. I did a beautiful job. Zhou had a slightly different description of the whole thing, and he implied to his colleagues that Nixon sent Kissinger because he was desperate for a meeting, comparing him to a whore who would, quote, dress up elaborately and present herself at the door. Either way, Nixon had his prized meeting. On July 15, 1971, Nixon went on television to make an announcement that stunned the world. Good evening. I have requested this television time tonight to announce a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world. As I have pointed out on a number of occasions over the past three years, there can be no stable and enduring peace without the participation of the People's Republic of China and its 750 million people. That is why I have undertaken initiatives in several areas to open the door for more normal relations between our two countries. In pursuance of that goal, I sent Dr. Kissinger, my assistant for national security affairs, to Peking during his recent world tour for the purpose of having talks with Premier Zhou Enlai. The announcement I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Peking and in the United States. Premier Zhou Enlai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China at an appropriate date before May 1972. President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure. The meeting between the leaders of China and the United States is to seek the normalization of relations between the two countries and also to exchange views on questions of concern to the two sides. Our action in seeking a new relationship with the People's Republic of China will not be at the expense of our old friends. It is not directed against any other nation. We seek friendly relations with all nations. Any nation can be our friend without being any other nation's enemy. I have taken this action because of my profound conviction that all nations will gain from a reduction of tensions and a better relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of China. It is in this spirit that I will undertake what I deeply hope will become a journey for peace. Peace not just for our generation, but for future generations on this earth we share together. Thank you and good night. The announcement came as a shock. Of course, Taiwan and Japan were worried that America was realigning towards their adversary. Some conservatives in the United States were dismayed. They remembered when FDR had met Stalin in Yalta and, in their view, gave up the farm and sold out Eastern Europe. They feared Nixon was doing the same thing, 
prominent conservative commentator, William F. Buckley, compared it to appeasing the Nazis. But many Americans felt that it was a positive step. Perhaps Cold War tensions with China could be reduced. Much of the shock centered on the fact that Nixon, one of the most famous anti-communists in the United States, was going to China, perhaps the most radical communist state in the world. The Washington Post soon wrote, quote, If Mr. Nixon had revealed that he was going to the moon, he could not have flabbergasted his world audience more. Nixon's visit to China was scheduled for February of 1972. China also experienced some blowback. Zhou had to meet with North Vietnamese leaders to assure them that they weren't abandoning them by engaging with their enemy. At the same time, it seemed that Taiwan's worst nightmare was becoming true. The UN voted to replace Taiwan with the People's Republic of China. The U.S. ambassador in the UN at the time, George H.W. Bush, tried to stop what was happening, but he was undercut by Nixon's new opening to China. In the run-up to Nixon's visit, Kissinger again met with Zhou, this time in October of 1971. During this meeting, both sides' positions became clearer. Zhou was again at times aggressive with Kissinger. He wanted the U.S. to set a timetable to leave Taiwan and to recognize PRC rule over it. Kissinger said this was a bridge too far, but he did something that would have probably horrified the Taiwanese people. He indicated that after the U.S. left Vietnam, it might be able to leave Taiwan gradually. He suggested that Nixon would have more flexibility to act on this after he was re-elected. Kissinger even promised that once peace in Vietnam was achieved, the U.S. would be able to set a clear timetable for removing most of its forces in Taiwan and would remove the rest depending on American relations with Beijing. Again, to build trust, Kissinger offered up classified information, this time on Taiwan, specifically on a supposed Taiwanese plot to wreck the U.S.-China talks. It would have shocked Americans to know that under the administration of Richard Nixon, the great anti-communist, the U.S. was giving secret information about an ally to a communist state. But for realists like Nixon and Kissinger, small powers like Taiwan had to accept their place in the world. To be fair, Nixon wasn't the first American president to consider bargaining with Taiwan's future. During World War II, FDR and the Allied powers decided to give Taiwan back to China, since Taiwan was under Japanese occupation. The Truman administration felt that Chiang Kai-shek's hopes of retaking the mainland were pipe dreams and considered abandoning Taiwan. The outbreak of the Korean War changed all of that, steering up fears of the spread of communism. Nixon and Kissinger publicly affirmed support for Taiwan, but were willing to go back on this and other issues during these secret meetings. You could see this when it came to the Vietnam War. Kissinger hinted to Zhou that the U.S. would be willing to leave Vietnam completely, something Zhou was happy to hear. Yet this was a position the administration publicly disavowed over and over. On February 21, 1972, Air Force One landed in Beijing. President Nixon and his wife stepped off the plane and were greeted by Prime Minister Zhou. And Premier Zhou Enlai moves forward to greet the first American president to set foot on Chinese soil. 
East meets West as a handshake bridges 16,000 miles and 22 years of hostility. There are no welcoming speeches, no formal ceremonies, just a receiving line made up of Communist Party officials and the military band playing the Star-Spangled Banner. That day, Nixon worked to gain Joe's trust, indicating that a long-term solution could be worked out over Taiwan. He also portrayed the U.S. and China as potential partners against Beijing's rivals, namely the Soviet Union and Japan. Zhou wasn't ready to make nice just yet. Just as with Kissinger, he berated the U.S. for its support for Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan, for allying itself with China's longtime enemy Japan, and for intervening in Korea and Vietnam. But he did indulge in some good old Soviet bashing. Nixon told Zhou that if a war broke out between the Soviets and the Chinese, America had their back. But he also affirmed that he was seeking detente with the Soviets because it was currently in America's interest to do so. Meeting Zhou was a big deal, but it brought up the question, would Nixon get to meet the guy at the very top? Before he left for China, it wasn't clear that Nixon was going to be able to meet Mao. This in itself posed a public perception risk. If Mao snubbed the President of the United States, it would be seen as a slap in the face all the world over. But on the first day of Nixon's arrival, Zhou informed him that he would be able to meet the chairman. For President Nixon, a sudden change in schedule. A surprise meeting with Mao Zedong, an honor last bestowed during the first day of a state visit on former Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Dr. Henry Kissinger sits in on the talks that are animated, constructive, and frank. At the summit, face to face, two leaders who direct the destiny of one out of three persons on the earth. The gate to friendly contact, says Joe and Lai, has finally been opened. This was the image that really stunned the world. Nixon meeting Mao. One the American president, the other the totalitarian dictator. During the conversation, Nixon attempted to flatter Mao by praising his writings. At first, Mao was coy, but then he reciprocated, praising Nixon's memoir Six Crises and saying that he had been rooting for him during the 1968 election. Nixon tried to discuss substantial issues like Taiwan and Vietnam, but Mao dodged the conversation. Being a good communist, Mao lightly chastised Nixon criticizing his country for its military adventures abroad. Mao was hiding his excitement. His doctor, Leisure Shui, later revealed that Mao was thrilled to be meeting Nixon. Afterwards, he praised Nixon, saying, quote, There is a man who knows what he stands for, as well as what he wants. But Mao was less kind to Kissinger, saying that he was, quote, just a funny little man, he is shuddering all over with nerves every time he comes to see me. 
U.S. official Winston Lord, who was at the meeting, wrote the following account of the visit with Mao. You could tell that Lord sensed that there was more to Mao than met the eye. Quote, The meeting lasted for about an hour. I remember distinctly coming out of the meeting somewhat disappointed. I was impressed with the physical impact of Mao. It was also clear that this man was tough, ruthless, and came from a peasant background, in contrast to the elegant Mandarin quality of Zhou Enlai. However, I thought that the conversation was somewhat episodic and not very full. Kissinger had sort of the same reaction as I did. Mao was speaking, as he usually did, in simple brushstrokes, whereas we were used to the formal, elegant, and somewhat lengthy presentations of Zhou Enlai. Mao would just throw in a few sentences, a few brushstrokes. He went from topic to topic, in a rather casual way. However, as we thought about it, and certainly by the end of the trip, we realized, in fact, that Mao had put in a very skillful performance. In his understated and unorthodox way, he had set forth the main lines of Chinese policy. He had made clear the features that he considered very important, and that other things could fall into place. Mao was self-deprecating, even though he had a tremendous ego. He had some humor. He had gotten through his agenda purposefully, even though it seemed casual and episodic. He had managed to cover the main points. I still don't think that it was one of the great conversations of all time. However, I think that Mao was much more purposeful and skillful than we gave him credit for at first. The great irony was that it was Kissinger, not Secretary of State Will Rogers, involved with these discussions. Kissinger was still the National Security Advisor, he ranked below Rogers. Rogers was part of the American entourage to China, but he played more of a symbolic role during this enormously important week. Rogers suffered one humiliation after another, since it was clear that Kissinger had the most influence with Nixon. It showed how thoroughly Nixon and Kissinger had successfully centralized foreign policy amongst themselves. During a welcoming banquet that evening, Nixon spoke of a brighter future between the two nations. There is no reason for us to be enemies. Neither of us seeks the territory of the other. Neither of us seeks domination over the other. Neither of us seeks to stretch out our hands and rule the world. Chairman Mao has written, so many deeds cry out to be done, and always urgently. The world rolls on. Time passes. 10,000 years are too long. Seize the day. Seize the hour. This is the hour. This is the day. For our two peoples to rise to the heights of greatness which can build a new and a better world. And in that spirit, I ask all of you present 
to join me in raising your glasses to Chairman Mao, to Prime Minister Cho, and to the friendship of the Chinese and American people, which can lead to friendship and peace for all people in the world. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Throughout the rest of the week, Nixon, Kissinger, and Zhou focused on two major issues, Taiwan and Vietnam. Nixon reaffirmed what Kissinger told Zhou about Taiwan. He offered even more concessions. Back in 1970, Nixon promised Chiang's government in Taiwan that he would never abandon them. But in Beijing, his tune had changed. He explicitly told Zhou that, quote, there is one China, and Taiwan is part of China. He promised that the United States would never support Chinese independence. He went even further, saying that the U.S. could withdraw all its forces in Taiwan during his second term, but it wasn't something he could publicly say just yet. Nixon said this because he hoped that China would agree to full normalization of relations with the United States, something that Nixon felt would really cement his place in history. Zhou seemed to reciprocate, saying that the Chinese government was willing to be patient for American policy on Taiwan to change, but a lot of details remained to be sorted out. The U.S. still had a defense treaty with Taiwan forged under President Eisenhower. Zhou hoped that the U.S. would explicitly repudiate the treaty, but Nixon and Kissinger preferred to just quietly dispose it somehow. The other issue they discussed was Vietnam. As I said earlier, Nixon and Kissinger hoped that China would use their clout on North Vietnam and pressure Hanoi to come to an agreement. They hoped that giving up concessions on Taiwan would convince them to do this. This is the linkage that we mentioned earlier. Now the historical record is a bit murky here. Historian Margaret Macmillan noted that even though China and the North Vietnamese were both Asian communist countries, they weren't always on good terms. They had had a number of disagreements, and there were times that Hanoi actually felt closer to the other great communist power, the Soviet Union. China could claim with some degree of legitimacy that it didn't actually have that much influence over North Vietnam, and the Taiwan concessions were not enough incentives for the Chinese to want to influence Hanoi toward peace. The Vietnam War actually gave the Chinese a key bargaining chip against the U.S., Resolving the issue too quickly would deprive them of it. The Chinese wanted to see how much they could get out of the Vietnam War. 
perhaps to use it to force America totally out of Southeast Asia. Nixon and Kissinger's willingness to make concessions gave the Chinese hope that the U.S. might be willing to leave the region. Zhou urged Nixon to do just that during their meetings and insisted that there wasn't much he could do to get Hanoi to the bargaining table. It was a disappointment for Nixon. He reiterated that the United States wanted a peaceful solution to the war. It was the North Vietnamese who were being stubborn. Nixon also pointed out that the American public wouldn't accept concessions to China on Taiwan if the U.S. got nothing on Vietnam. But Zhou held firm. The rest of the conference involved fancy banquets and nice photo ops, including one at the Great Wall of China. While standing on the Great Wall with his wife, Pat, Nixon expressed his thoughts. And one stands there and sees the the wall going to the peak of this mountain and realizes that it runs for hundreds of miles, as a matter of fact, thousands of miles over the mountains and through the valleys of this country. Uh, that it was built uh, over 2,000 years ago. Uh, I think that you would have to conclude that this is a great wall and that it had to be built by a great people. In addition to Beijing, Nixon and his party visited Shanghai and Hangzhou. They toured several historic sites and watched ping-pong matches and communist propaganda plays. Nixon spent an entire week in China from February 21st to the 28th. He made sure that footage of him in China with Zhou and Mao and his time on the wall were transmitted back to millions of Americans. The press invited to join him included media heavyweights like Walter Cronkite, Barbara Walters, and William Buckley. Buckley remained critical of the trip, equating it with the appeasement of Hitler before World War II. He said of the visit, We have lost any remaining sense of moral mission in the world. While the trip began with warm feelings, by the end of the week, Nixon was getting impatient with all of the formalities. He and Zhou ran out of things to say, so they just sat there awkwardly at times. While all of this was happening, Henry Kissinger was working feverishly with his Chinese counterparts on issuing a communique a joint statement by the two sides on the new relationship between the two countries. It was a critical document that would serve as a foundation for future relations. Between all of the diplomatic pablum about peace and mutual respect, the biggest disagreement about the document, predictably, came over Taiwan. Both sides haggled over every word on the issue, The Chinese wanted language to indicate that America would leave Taiwan and recognize Beijing's rule over the island. Kissinger said that he couldn't agree to that so soon, but he could offer private assurances that, in the long run, Beijing would get what it wanted. For his part, Kissinger asked China to promise not to use force on Taiwan. The Chinese said that they couldn't make any such commitment. They agreed to have two sections, one that laid out the U.S. position and another that laid out China's position. When the language was ready to be approved, the U.S. State Department freaked out that it might be interpreted as America abandoning Taiwan. Nixon and Kissinger were furious, believing that the State Department was upset 
that they had been marginalized throughout the visit and were trying to sink the communique because they felt left out. Still, Kissinger agreed to revise the language. In the final draft, the U.S. affirmed about as much as China wanted to hear without totally abandoning the Taiwanese. Quote, The United States acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain that there is but one China and that Taiwan is part of China. The United States government does not challenge that position. It reaffirms its interest in a peaceful settlement of the Taiwan question by the Chinese themselves. With this prospect in mind, it affirms the ultimate objective of the withdrawal of all U.S. forces and military installations from Taiwan. In the meantime, it will progressively reduce its forces and military installations on Taiwan as the tension in the area diminishes. The document, known as the Shanghai Communique, affirmed the desire to normalize relations between the two sides. Mr. Prime Minister, our two peoples tonight hold the future of the world in our hands. And as we think of that future, we are dedicated to the principle that we can build a new world, a world of peace, a world of justice, a world of independence for all nations. And if we succeed in working together where we can find common ground, if we can find the common ground on which we can both stand, where we can build the bridge between us and build the new world, generations in the years ahead will look back and thank us for this meeting that we have held in this past week. And let the great Chinese people and the great American people be worthy of the hopes and ideals of the world for peace and justice and progress for all. As Nixon and his entourage flew home, many questions were left unresolved. It seemed that he and Kissinger got nothing from China when it came to Vietnam, and they also had given many assurances to China regarding Taiwan, assurances that raised expectations in Beijing, but would complicate things with allies and domestic interest groups. Nixon and Kissinger hoped that through their strategy of linkage, the opening to China would create benefits elsewhere, including in Vietnam, and with respect to America's main adversary, the Soviet Union. It was also the clearest manifestation of their ideology of realism. American foreign policy no longer viewed the communist world as a monolithic bloc. It was setting aside ideology by interacting with the most populous communist state in the world. The whole China trip was part of their realism and a vision for the world where the balance of power kept the peace. If China emerged from its isolation, Nixon and Kissinger hoped that it could play a stabilizing role, checking the Soviets. But back home, there were critics. The China lobby, the interest group that favored Taiwan, was furious. Conservatives followed Buckley's lead, saying that Nixon had sacrificed America's moral standing in the world by engaging with the communist regime. 
but most of the reaction was positive. And that reaction wasn't necessarily about the nuances of foreign policy or realism. For most Americans, the appearance of Nixon in the mysterious hermit kingdom of China was an achievement in itself. America may have had a strong anti-communist streak, but for Nixon and Kissinger to have pulled off what they did, it must have required no shortage of diplomatic genius. In an era when America was feeling its limits in Vietnam, the idea of having two foreign policy virtuosos at the highest levels was comforting. And remember, 1972 was an election year, Nixon's realism wasn't just about international politics. He was also a master, to some extent, of domestic American politics. Nixon had long been portrayed by his enemies as a red-baiting hack, but he had effectively co-opted the opposition. The anti-war crowd wanted peace, and many of them were calling Nixon a war criminal because of what he was doing in Vietnam and Cambodia. But by going to China... Nixon seemed to be saying to them, who's the peacemaker now? The images of Nixon with Mao or on the Great Wall with Zhou Enlai made him look like a statesman. It was harder for his opponents to argue that he was the same anti-communist hack of the 1940s and 50s. The China visit had the kind of impact that one could expect in Taiwan and Japan. Both countries were shocked and feared being betrayed by Washington. Japan was upset for good reason, because they had previously accepted America's demand not to trade with China. Suddenly, America was opening up relations with Beijing behind their back. Taiwan was caught flat-footed, having relied too long on the powerful China lobby. Just months before his visit to Beijing, Nixon had sent California Governor Ronald Reagan a strong Taiwan supporter, to Taipei to reassure Cheng's government of American support. Reagan later said he regretted agreeing to the trip, feeling that he had been had by the president. It's hard to say for sure, but Nixon's visit to China possibly had an effect on North Vietnam. Even though Zhou disavowed any real influence on Hanoi, he did begin to fear that the U.S. might back away from normalizing relations with China if North Vietnam didn't start cooperating. According to historian Melvin Small, Zhou and Mao later began hinting to the North Vietnamese that they should come to the table with the Americans. As we covered earlier, this was around the time Nixon was hitting the North Vietnamese with Operation Linebacker 1 and 2. A year after the trip to China, America and Vietnam concluded the peace agreement. It's hard to know how much Zhou and Mao influenced Hanoi to make peace with the United States, but one cannot discount the possibility. The visit did have a clear impact on Moscow. The SALT talks had stalled, as did arrangements for a summit between Nixon and Brezhnev. Remember, by this time, the Soviet-Chinese relationship was fraught with tension complete with border skirmishes and competition for status as head of the worldwide communist movement. When Nixon announced he was going to China, the Kremlin was shocked. Margaret Macmillan wrote that the mood of the Kremlin was, quote, one of confusion and indeed almost hysteria. It was likely no coincidence that soon after the visit to China, 
Nixon and Brezhnev scheduled their summit for May 1972 in Moscow. During that summit, Nixon and Brezhnev officially signed the SALT Treaty. It was a major victory for Nixon's detente policy. The SALT talks had been going on for some time, even before the China visit, and the Nixon administration was hungry for a treaty. Secretary of Defense Laird said, quote, short-term expediency dominated the final stages of the SALT-1 agreement in 1972, when the urge to get an agreement at any cost became the chief end. Kissinger considered it the crowning achievement of his career. But the treaty only did so much. It imposed caps on offensive missiles and submarines, limiting the growth of nuclear weapons. But it didn't have actual reductions. It also didn't get rid of MIRVs, the missiles with multiple warheads. The Americans and the Soviets did sign another treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, or the ABM, which limited both countries to two missile defense systems. The treaties had their critics. American liberals said that they changed nothing, allowing the arms race to continue. American conservatives said that they imposed constraints on the United States and predicted that the Soviets would find ways to cheat. But most Americans, again, saw Nixon as the statesman who did what no other previous Cold War president had accomplished, a real agreement on strategic weapons that would stabilize the arms race and limit its costs. The era of detente was in full swing. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. There were other complications resulting from Nixon and Kissinger's opening with China, and one event during this time should be mentioned. I won't go into all of the details because it's far too complicated and could really be its own podcast episode, but it involves Pakistan and India. At the time, Pakistan was a key Cold War ally of the United States, while India tilted towards the Soviets. Since the partition between India and Pakistan in the 1940s, Pakistan was divided between East Pakistan and West Pakistan, which were located on the opposite sides of India. In 1970, East Pakistan voted overwhelmingly for autonomy from West Pakistan after years of repressive rule. In 1971, a war between East and West Pakistan erupted. East Pakistan, known as Bangladesh, soon garnered the world's sympathy as West Pakistani soldiers committed atrocities against them, including the rape of tens of thousands of Bangladeshi women. India got involved and aided Bangladesh. Many Americans sympathized with the Bangladeshi, and Nixon and Kissinger were pressured to cease support for Pakistan. Instead, Nixon doubled down on support for Pakistan, the reason? 
because Pakistan was that critical intermediary between America and China. As I mentioned earlier, Kissinger traveled through Pakistan to get to China on his first visit with Zhou Enlai. Also, Nixon and Kissinger felt that abandoning Pakistan, an ally, would signal to China that America wasn't reliable. Ultimately, Bangladesh won independence. But to this day, they remain suspicious of the United States for supporting its nemesis, Pakistan, as it was committing atrocities against them. For Nixon and Kissinger, tolerating Pakistan's unsavory actions in Bangladesh was worth the price of a new relationship with China. Nixon's foreign policy is mostly known for Vietnam and the opening to China. But there was another event involving the superpowers that stands out. Perhaps the biggest foreign policy crisis of Nixon's presidency. And it happened in the Middle East. Ever since the days of the Truman administration, the United States had been a strong supporter of Israel. But it also had relationships with its Arab neighbors, thanks to their massive oil reserves. In 1967, when Lyndon Johnson was president, the Arabs and Israelis went to war, and Israel won an overwhelming victory. When it was over, Israel had seized the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, the West Bank, including West Jerusalem from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from Syria. It was a great humiliation for the Arab countries. When Nixon took office, he and Kissinger again saw the Middle East from a realist perspective. Yeah, it was great that Israel was a fellow democracy, but Nixon and Kissinger were less pro-Israel. They wanted to cultivate better relations with the Arabs. They figured that doing so would prevent the Soviets from filling in the void in the Middle East. Egypt also had a new president. For years, the country was led by Gamal Abdel Nasser, who, as we saw in the Eisenhower and Kennedy episodes, often gave the United States headaches. When Anwar Sadat succeeded Nasser as the leader of Egypt, there were hopes for a new beginning in U.S.-Arab relations. But Sadat and his Arab partners wanted Israel to leave the territories it had occupied in 1967. Sadat warned, if Israel refused, there would be war. American policymakers underestimated this threat, believing it to be a bluff. Golda Meir's government in Israel also paid little attention to the threat. In October of 1973, on Yom Kippur, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, the Arabs attacked. The Nixon administration believed the Soviets likely knew the attack was coming and was disappointed Moscow didn't try to stop it or notify the Americans of it. Nixon and Kissinger had hoped that the new era of detente would incentivize the Soviets to cooperate with the United States and help ward off international crises. Unlike in 1967, Israel was unprepared and took heavy losses. Soon Mir's government requested aid from the United States as their supplies were starting to run out. But the Nixon administration stalled. The Arab countries were threatening to cut off oil supplies in retaliation against nations that supported Israel. Then they made good on that threat in the middle of the conflict. This caused a 300% increase in the price of oil. The Arab power over the price of oil, and the fact that Nixon was a realist, 
led him to feel even less loyalty to Israel. And he didn't think it would be such a bad thing if the Arab countries came out stronger in this crisis. Remember, this was in line with his balance of power thinking, that more parity in international systems mean greater stability. The Nixon administration started to walk a fine line. They didn't want Israel to lose the war outright, for fear that the U.S. might get blamed for letting an ally fall. But they also felt that Arab gains could have its benefits. The administration now felt that the best outcome would be if Israel didn't lose, but if the Arabs came away with a moral victory, a better performance than they had in 1967. And that's pretty much what happened. The entire conflict lasted a little less than three weeks the U.S. ended up providing nominal assistance to Israel. As the tide turned in favor of Israel, Egypt and Syria requested aid from the Soviet Union to salvage their efforts. Now this is where things got tricky. Both the Israelis and the Arabs were looking to their patrons, the United States and the Soviet Union. And in the Cold War, this meant that a regional conflict immediately had global repercussions. And in these situations, there was always the fear that things could escalate quickly and that the two superpowers would be presented with the choice of a full-blown confrontation or humiliating retreat. This time, detente seemed to pay off. Soviet leader Brezhnev felt comfortable enough to reach out to Kissinger, now the U.S. Secretary of State, to draw up a ceasefire agreement. On October 22, 1973, exactly 11 years from the day of the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis under President Kennedy, Kissinger and the Soviets hammered out an agreement. But Kissinger wasn't totally being candid with Moscow. Israel was turning the tide and felt that the ceasefire prevented them from more gains at the Arab country's expense. Some historians believe that Kissinger shifted his thinking and gave the Israelis a wink and a nod that he wouldn't mind if they marched on, in violation of the ceasefire he himself had negotiated. When rumors to this effect reached the Soviets, they were infuriated. On October 24th, Brezhnev warned the United States, quote, I will say it straight, if you find it impossible to act jointly with us in this matter, we should be faced with the necessity urgently to consider the question of taking appropriate steps unilaterally. What that meant, no one could be sure. But in the nuclear age, both sides knew that they were inching towards a potential confrontation. It could mean a Soviet intervention in the Middle East, and that could escalate into something much worse. For his part, Kissinger said that he was, quote, determined to resist by force if necessary, the introduction of Soviet troops into the Middle East, regardless of the pretext under which they arrived. The situation was grave, and the world feared war. Nixon reportedly told military aide Alexander Haig, quote, This is the most serious thing since the Cuban Missile Crisis. American intelligence agencies reported the Soviet Union was moving planes into Egypt and conducting troop exercises. Kissinger then upped the ante. He raised America's military alert level to DEFCON 3 on October 25th. 
Kissinger later described it as a deliberate overreaction to get the Soviets to back down. The Soviets were furious at the Americans, believing it to be an unnecessary escalation. On that same day, Nixon explained this move at a press conference. A very significant and potentially explosive crisis developed on Wednesday of this week. We obtained information which led us to believe that the Soviet Union was planning to send a very substantial force into the Mideast, a military force. When I received that information, I ordered shortly after midnight on Thursday morning a alert for all American forces around the world. This was a precautionary alert. Uh, the purpose of that was to indicate to the Soviet Union that uh, we could not accept uh, any unilateral move on their part to move military forces into the Mideast. At this point, the Israelis realized that the situation could get out of control. They accepted the ceasefire. On October 30th, Israel and Egypt began talks. Within a few weeks, the talks moved to Geneva and included the United States and the Soviet Union. By January of 1974, an armistice agreement was signed. Throughout this time, Kissinger engaged in what was called shuttle diplomacy, visiting the Middle East 11 times. He knew that it was too much to ask for a general peace between the Arabs and the Israelis, so he focused on working to forge bilateral agreements between Israel and Egypt and Israel and Syria. The crisis abated, and the Arab nations lifted the oil embargo in March of 1974. Most people know about the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962 during the Kennedy administration. Fewer know about the Yom Kippur Crisis in October of 1973, that it too was a grave situation, a true Cold War confrontation this time in the volatile Middle East. Kissinger was willing to go to the brink with the Soviets. It had been a dangerous gamble, but somehow the United States came out of it in a stronger position. The Arab nations saw just how much clout the United States had in the region and began questioning how much they could rely on the Soviets. America under Nixon seemed to be better positioned to play a constructive role. Its new approach toward realism meant that it wasn't so strongly pro-Israel, allowing it to play the role of a neutral arbiter. And yet it still had enough clout over Israel to influence it toward bilateral agreements with Arab leaders. America's policies toward the Middle East were changing. Nixonian Kissinger realism would facilitate a new relationship between Israel and its neighbors allowing for the normalization of relations in future administrations. As Nixon said, We now come, of course, to the critical time in terms of the future of the Mideast. And here, the outlook is far more hopeful than what we have been through this past week. Uh, I think I could safely say that the chances for not just a ceasefire, which we presently have, and which, of course, we have had in the Mideast for some time, but the outlook for a permanent peace is the best that it has been in 20 years. For the last few minutes, 
I've been referring to Kissinger and the Nixon administration, and less so to Nixon alone. After all, it was Kissinger, not Nixon, who ordered the escalation to DEFCON 3. He basically had virtual free reign on U.S. foreign policy. And the reason was because throughout pretty much the entire Yom Kippur crisis, perhaps the most dangerous moment of his presidency, Richard Nixon was preoccupied with another matter. Good evening. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards employed by the Watergate complex. At first, the police found nothing. Then they spied five men crouching behind some desks. Neither the president, obviously, or anybody in the White House or anybody in authority in any of the committees working for the re-election of the president have any responsibility for it. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Back in June 17, 1972, five men were arrested for breaking into the Watergate Hotel in an attempt to wiretap the Democratic National Committee headquarters. The Nixon administration denied any involvement. Thus began the infamous Watergate scandal that would destroy Richard Nixon's presidency. The scandal would last about two years and result in the indictments of 69 people, 48 of whom would be found guilty. I could go further into this scandal. You could write an entire podcast series on it. But our focus here is on the Cold War, not the scandal itself. It's true that the nation was rocked by the scandal in an era already full of turmoil. Watergate has been seared into the American people's collective memory. They remember the clips of Nixon proclaiming, I'm not a crook, and blurting out obscenities and epithets in Oval Office recordings. They might even remember Nixon aide John Dean's riveting testimony before Congress. New phrases from the scandal, like the Saturday Night Massacre, and code names like Deep Throat, entered the popular culture. Nixon found himself ensnared in the scandal and his attempt at a cover-up. But even Nixon knew the dangerous web he was weaving. On August 29, 1972, during a press conference, Nixon said, quote, I can state categorically that no one in the White House staff no one in this administration, presently employed, was involved in this very bizarre incident. 
What really hurts is if you try to cover it up. In 1968, Richard Nixon pulled off one of the greatest comebacks in American political history, winning the presidency. But from 1972 to 1974, he suffered one of the greatest collapses in American political history. He had won re-election in 1972 with one of the greatest landslides ever, winning 49 states. But as more tapes came out, it became clear that he had worked to cover up the burglar's ties to the White House. He fought to the Supreme Court to keep the tapes from being released publicly, but he lost. On July 27, 1974, the House Judiciary Committee approved articles of impeachment. By August, it was clear not only would the impeachment trial begin, but that conviction and removal from office was almost certain. On August 8th, 1974, Richard Nixon went before the American people in a televised address. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office, where so many decisions have been made that shape the history of this nation. Each time I have done so to discuss with you some matter that I believe affected the national interest. In all the decisions I have made in my public life, I have always tried to do what was best for the nation. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere, to make every possible effort to complete the term of office to which you elected me. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. As long as there was such a base, I felt strongly that it was necessary to see the constitutional process through to its conclusion, that to do otherwise would be unfaithful to the spirit of that deliberately difficult process and a dangerously destabilizing precedent for the future. But with the disappearance of that base, I now believe that the constitutional purpose has been served and there is no longer a need for the process to be prolonged. I would have preferred to carry through to the finish whatever the personal agony it would have involved. And my family unanimously urged me to do so. But the interests of the nation must always come before any personal considerations. From the discussions I have had with congressional and other leaders, I have concluded that because of the Watergate matter, I might not have the support of the Congress that I would consider necessary to back the very difficult decisions and carry out the duties of this office in the way the interests of the nation will require. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress, particularly at this time with problems we face at home and abroad. 
to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issues of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. In that speech, Nixon had portrayed himself as doing what was in the nation's interest. That had been his theme all along. In his attempt to reorient American foreign policy, he wanted to ground that policy on American interest and to build a world where every nation's interests were checked in a global balance of power. But his cover-up in the Watergate scandal, largely the result of his own demons, his distrust of others, and his vindictiveness, ended any hopes of further implementing his vision. He told the American people that he was leaving because of his concerns for their interest. But the American people, in the end, felt betrayed. It was a historical tragedy of epic proportion. This would-be peacemaker, who wished so very much to change the world, who remade the relationships between America and its communist adversaries, would find himself leaving office in disgrace, the most vilified president in modern history. Throughout the Watergate scandal, many of Nixon's counterparts in the Kremlin and in Beijing didn't know what to make of what was happening. They had gotten to know Nixon, the statesman. They saw him win re-election in a landslide. They knew that, as president, he was the most powerful man in the world. And yet here he was in trouble for a burglary, something that wouldn't have made headlines in China or the Soviet Union. In the communist world, political opponents were routinely imprisoned or executed. Moscow and Beijing wondered, how could such a powerful man get in trouble for a burglary? They wondered if Watergate was some sort of right-wing plot to destroy Nixon because he reached out to them. But for many Americans, Nixon's political downfall was justified. They believed that no one was above the law, especially the President of the United States, the individual tasked with upholding the law itself. America had gone through unprecedented turmoil. Faith in American institutions was at an all-time low. But when Nixon departed, there was, for many, also the sense that something good had happened. People believed that the system, the entire constitutional process, had worked. The people and their representatives wouldn't stand for a president who they believed felt he was above the law. It was a tragic and devastating end to an epic career. Soon after his resignation, the new president, Gerald Ford, pardoned him for whatever crimes he partook in during the Watergate scandal. It led to a firestorm of controversy, undermining Ford's popularity and contributing to his defeat by Jimmy Carter in 1976. Some people wondered if there had been some corrupt bargain, in which Nixon resigned, leaving the presidency to Ford, with the agreement that Ford would pardon him later. In 1978, Four years after resigning in disgrace, Nixon spoke at the Oxford Union in the UK. It was one of his first public appearances since leaving office. 
He spoke on a number of issues, mostly focused on foreign policy. During the entire talk, a loud group of protesters were chanting outside the building. One member of the audience asked him how important he felt honor was in the career of a politician. His answer was the closest he came to publicly repenting for Watergate. No, the, the question was that uh, considering all the factors that we have mentioned with Africa and so forth, uh, isn't honor the most important uh, element, uh, I guess, in government or in a man or what have you? Yeah, I would, I would say yes. I would say yes. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, I uh, would say to this uh, particular audience or to any audience that uh, politica- a political man, uh, he, he will rise or fall based on that. He has to gain the respect and confidence of his colleagues. He's got to keep his word. If he doesn't keep his word, he may win in the short run. He isn't going to win in the long run. Uh, and. Uh, I think one of the problems with regard to uh, what we call the Watergate business, uh, because while you didn't say that, uh, I will imply (laughs) that uh, uh, a question was raised that despite uh, some of the things that I had done that they felt were worthwhile, uh, that deserved support, uh, they felt that on this matter uh, that I had not handled it properly, uh, and they were right. I screwed it up, and I paid the price. Richard Nixon spent his remaining years rehabilitating his image, sometimes giving interviews, often writing books and articles. He maintained relationships with those in power in Washington, including whoever happened to be president at the time, offering advice to anyone who would listen. Many Americans continued to hate Nixon, but many others considered him a valuable source of foreign policy knowledge. He suffered a severe stroke on April 18, 1994, and he died four days later at the age of 81. As I said at the start of this series, Richard Nixon remains one of the least popular presidents in American history. Despite what many consider to be monumental accomplishments, he is remembered primarily for the Watergate scandal and for being the first and only president to resign. Nixon had spent years carefully cultivating an image as a wise and shrewd statesman. Despite all of these efforts, for many, the lasting image of Nixon is of a sneering, petty, vindictive ogre of a man. One who was lonely, insecure, corrupt, and untrustworthy. Some historians have defended Nixon, claiming that Watergate should not overwhelm consideration of all of his accomplishments. But Nixon's policies also spark controversy. Critics point to the human cost of Nixon and Kissinger's realist foreign policy. They point to the expansion of the Vietnam War into Cambodia, the massive bombings, the use of covert operations, the secrecy that centralized all foreign policy into just two men's hands. Many claim that Nixon unnecessarily prolonged the Vietnam War, leading to 18,000 combat deaths. Critics on both the left and the right attack his detente policies, saying that he worked with totalitarian tyrants in Moscow and Beijing while ignoring the human rights of those they oppressed. Is this a fair appraisal of Richard Nixon? 
When Nixon died in 1994, then-President Bill Clinton eulogized him, saying, quote, May the day of judging President Nixon on anything less than his entire life and career come to a close. If we use that standard, we can say that there is some truth to the stereotype of who Nixon was. Many of Nixon's aides and friends affirm that he was a socially awkward, lonely, and bitter man. But they often affirm his brilliance as well, and his immense determination. Politics is one of the most social professions out there. It's remarkable that such a socially awkward man reached its pinnacle and is a testament to his skills as a strategist. And when we look at his presidency, we must accept, at the least, that he took office during one of the most difficult times in American history. As I said earlier, America had half a million troops stuck in one of the most unpopular wars it had ever been involved in. The social fabric of the country was coming apart. America faced new challenges abroad as it found itself overstretched and overextended and other nations, both friend and foe, were catching up and competing against it successfully. Let's not pretend that Johnson left Nixon with anything less than a very difficult situation. Nixon does have his supporters, surprisingly on both the left and the right. In fact, his 1972 Democratic opponent, George McGovern, said that aside from Nixon's Vietnam policies, he was a very successful president. Nixon fans laud his opening to China and his arms agreements with the Soviet Union as key to reducing tensions in the Cold War. And in China, Nixon is remembered fondly by many, perhaps more so than in the United States, for his pragmatic policies that led to a new relationship between Beijing and Washington. Given the reduced leverage the United States had when Nixon entered office due to the war, internal divisions, and greater competition abroad, it is remarkable that Nixon and Kissinger accomplished as much as they did. Whether one agrees with their moves toward the Soviet Union and China, they did take a great deal of initiative, and it did have some of their intended effect. The North Vietnamese and the Soviets were both alarmed at Nixon's opening to China, and that provided the United States some measure of leverage. Critics like Ronald Reagan argued that detente actually achieved nothing and only emboldened the Soviets and the Chinese to continue with their oppression. There is validity to this argument. But I think if there's something positive to say about Nixon's detente, it can be said that if it was a pragmatic foreign policy based on cold, unsentimental, calculated interest, at least it wasn't based on a naive view of the world. Good intentions mixed with naivete in foreign policy can be disastrous, especially when dealing with tyrants and aggressors, as the appeasers of Hitler learned. Nixon understood the idea of maximizing his leverage, whether it was through his geopolitical chess move into China or through the use of massive strategic bombings. And the fact remains that while Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson all wished to arrive at some level of detente with the Soviets, it was Nixon who finally achieved it. It was Nixon who was the first president to sign a strategic arms limitation deal with the Soviets. There will always be questions about the human cost of Nixon's policies, especially when it came to his bombing of Cambodia 
or his acceptance of Pakistani atrocities in Bangladesh. Critics will also question whether the massive bombings of Vietnam during Operation Linebacker 1 and 2 were justified, given the civilian deaths. I do think it needs to be said that in the case of Vietnam, Nixon was dealing with an intransigent regime that had the upper hand. Hanoi had little incentive to cave to Nixon's demands since the war was becoming unpopular in the United States. Nixon felt he had no alternative other than withdrawing troops as a way to cut losses, but as he did so, this convinced the North Vietnamese to wait out on America's inevitable departure. It was a tough position to be in, and he felt massive bombings were the best way to maintain American leverage over the whole situation. And when it comes to Cambodia, it is a fact that the North Vietnamese were using the country as a proxy. Unfortunately for Cambodia, the situation would soon destabilize, ultimately leading to the rise of the communist Khmer Rouge party, which would slaughter a large percentage of the population. Nixon's critics blame him for this as well, arguing that the bombings in Cambodia destabilized the country and alienated the population, pushing them into the arms of the communist regime. Is this fair? I can't claim to be an expert on Cambodian history, but I do think that people forget that ultimately it was the communists that took over Cambodia and implemented the Khmer Rouge government, regardless of what Nixon did. It's not clear to me that if America refrained from action and allowed the North Vietnamese to use Cambodia as a proxy, that the communists wouldn't have tried to take Cambodia over eventually and commit the atrocities that they did. And Nixon's supporters have argued that at least Nixon tried to fight the communists in Cambodia, and that it was his political opponents who prevented him or his successor, Gerald Ford, from being able to intervene to stop the Khmer Rouge takeover. Nixon himself weighed in on the fall of Southeast Asia to the communists in his retirement, again in Oxford in 1978. And again, you'll hear the protesters in the background. I would not want to leave the impression that had I remained in office, that I could have avoided the fall of Vietnam, uh, because that obviously would lead to the conclusion that President Ford could have done something that would have avoided that. Let me say that had the Congress acceded to President Ford's request for additional funds for military assistance to the government of South Vietnam, South Vietnam would not have fallen. At the event, he also justified the incursion into Cambodia because the leader of Cambodia had invited the United States in, and North Vietnamese forces there were using the country to attack American soldiers. Cambodia at, in 1970. Cambodia was an area where there was a whole group of sanctuaries, so-called, in which North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops uh, were stationed. There were no Cambodians whatever there. Shianuk, whom I knew, I met him back in 53, when he was still playing the violin. But in any event, Shianuk had told one of our representatives that 
As far as he was concerned, he didn't care what we did in that part of Cambodia because no Cambodians were there, and he'd like to get the North Vietnamese out of his country. Now, what was happening is they were in that part of the country, and then they would come across the border into Vietnam, and they were killing Americans and our South Vietnamese allies by the tens of thousands, and then they'd go back over. We couldn't even pursue them. We couldn't do anything. Also, in that spring, April, they were sending great numbers of troops into Cambodia, preparing for what is called the Tet Offensive of that year. It was to be shortly after Tet. Had we not struck them then, we would have had enormous casualties. So what were we to do? Let them have this privileged sanctuary or go in there? Now, let me just add one other point. When we talk about invading Cambodia, may I ask, in World War II, when Eisenhower ordered the landing on Normandy, was that invading France? No, the purpose of that was to destroy the German armies that were occupying France, and he was right to do it. When we went into Cambodia, we weren't invading Cambodia. Chinook didn't object to it. We were going there for the purpose of blunting an offensive that would have killed American men. I'd do it again. I wish I'd done it sooner and the war had been over sooner. The debate on Nixon's responsibility continues, but I think it's important to keep in mind the communists' culpability in the situation. Then there's also the uncomfortable matter of Nixon and Kissinger sharing intelligence with the communist Chinese on America's ally, Taiwan. And there's the promise that they made to China that America would one day recognize Beijing rule over Taiwan. In many ways, this raised expectations among the Chinese leadership, expectations that America would look the other way while Beijing took over Taiwan. Expectations that ended up being false hopes. Nixon and Kissinger justified this as an attempt to win over Beijing's trust. And if they could win over that trust, they could have significant leverage over the Soviet Union. But for the millions in Taiwan, America was selling them out. There will always be a fair question as to whether Nixon and Kissinger went too far in their attempt to secure detente, that their realism, blinded them to America's moral obligations. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of the most famous Russian critics of communism, believed that detente only emboldened the Soviet regime to oppress its people further, saying, quote, I have tried to explain to Americans that 1973, the tender dawn of detente, was precisely the year when the starvation rations in Soviet prisons and concentration camps reduced even further. And in recent months, when more and more Western speechmakers have pointed to the beneficial consequences of detente, the Soviet Union has adopted a novel and important improvement in its system of punishment. To retain their glorious supremacy in the invention of forced labor camps, Soviet prison specialists have now established a new form of solitary confinement, forced labor in solitary cells. This means cold, hunger, lack of fresh air, insufficient light, and impossible work norms. 
the failure to fulfill these norms is punished by confinement under even more brutal conditions. For Nixon and Kissinger, the sufferings of those imprisoned in the Soviet system were a necessary evil to better relations with the Soviets and create a more stable world order. At his talk in Oxford, Nixon insisted that this system and creating a new relationship with the Soviets reduced the threat of nuclear war. He also believed that dealing with the Soviets and integrating them into the world economy could help influence them in a more constructive, more peaceful direction. As Nixon said in Oxford, My final point on Vietnam is this. It did not need to be lost. The responsibility for losing it is twofold. One, the Soviet Union, in violation of certainly their commitments to us that they would not continue to instigate the North and supply it with the additional uh, forces that they did. And second, the failure of the Congress of the United States to grant President Ford's request for arms so that at least the South Vietnamese would be able to fight on their own. By detente, we were recognizing a fact of life. They're there and we're here. Each of us has the power to blow each other up. And it's time to blow the world up. Now, what do we do? Communicate with them? Not know each other? Or do we find a way to communicate with them on issues where we are never going to agree so that those issues don't explode into war and then find a few areas where we can agree so that both sides will have a stake in keeping the peace. Then just to sum it up briefly, as far as Etan is concerned, it's important for the leaders to know each other. Second, in the economic areas that have no military significance, it's important to build those ties because it gives the Russians a little stake in not in, in peace. Still, for the critics on both the left and the right, detente was either a risky or an immoral policy. And a rising star in the Republican Party, Ronald Reagan, would argue that the Soviets were an evil empire and America had a moral obligation to oppose it with all of its might. When it came to the Vietnam War, Nixon and Kissinger had legitimate concerns that completely abandoning Vietnam would signal to the world that America, having made a commitment to the South Vietnamese, was an untrustworthy ally. Nixon himself argued that pulling out of Vietnam completely would have so damaged America's credibility that detente with the Soviet Union and China might have been impossible, that America would either appear utterly weak or so unreliable that Moscow and Beijing would have no incentive to engage diplomatically. Again, without the benefit of hindsight, I can understand this concern. But I honestly have to say that if I were president in 1969, I would want very much to end the fighting in Vietnam. But as the leader of the free world, I would have also been concerned about the importance of maintaining credibility as an ally and I would at least find somewhat compelling the urge to ensure that those thousands of American deaths already incurred in Vietnam did not happen in vain. These are factors that are easy to overlook when you aren't the one making the decisions. One can quibble with the details of how Nixon and Kissinger pulled out of Vietnam, 
or whether the incursion into Cambodia was successful, and of Nixon and Kissinger's motives. But when viewed from above, their policy of Vietnamization was reasonable. Instead of abandoning an ally, Nixon sought to continue supporting it, but giving that ally a better means to defend itself. At the same time, it is a fact that Nixon removed the vast majority of American troops from Vietnam. When Nixon took office in 1969, there were half a million American troops there. There were virtually none by 1974. Given the difficult circumstances involved, the political limitations imposed on Nixon, the intransigence of the enemy, and America's role as a world superpower and leader of the free world, it's hard for me to come up with a better solution. In the end, Nixon and Kissinger probably did as well in Vietnam as anyone could have done, given very difficult circumstances. Vietnam, like Cambodia, ended up falling to the communists. America's sacrifice, as well as the deaths of millions of Vietnamese, seemed to be all for nothing. Nixon later claimed that the Watergate scandal tied his hands and prevented him from defending South Vietnam in the event of northern aggression. I'm sure few people were surprised when, after the U.S. pulled out, the North continued its efforts to conquer the South. Kissinger himself said, after the 1973 peace agreement, that Saigon could only hold out for a year and a half at best. Perhaps the South Vietnamese collapse was inevitable, and many argue that if that was the case, America might as well have just let it happen, and that Nixon's claims that he could have prevented it were disingenuous. This may be the case, but this brings us to what America's obligations are as a superpower. There have been times when America has been criticized for doing nothing when some evil was going on in the world, and there was a legitimate fear of communist expansion at the time. In the end, America had a thankless task of leading the free world. During the Cold War, after America helped liberate millions of people from Nazi and Japanese tyranny, millions around the world continued to look to America for freedom and for hope. Hope that they could liberate them from their capturers. Many South Vietnamese hoped for the same thing. John F. Kennedy had said that America would, quote, pay any price and bear any burden to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Perhaps bearing any burden for liberty also referred to those hopeless situations where victory wasn't possible. Perhaps this was the case in Vietnam. At the least, Nixon's presidency was a watershed moment for American foreign policy. During World War II, there were clear, unambiguous enemies in Nazi Germany and fascist Japan. In the wake of World War II, America was the only world power left unscathed by the war. Most of the world's economy ran through the United States. But by 1969, America was faced with a new world one with greater ambiguity and more limitations on what it could do. Nixon's response was realism. The result was a new page in the history of the Cold War, a new beginning in America's relations with the Soviets and the Chinese. When scholars study China's emergence onto the world stage, they inevitably turn to Nixon's historic trip to Beijing. When they study the fall of the Soviet Union, 
they inevitably turn to Nixon's foundational work to implement detente. In doing so, scholars affirm Bob Dole's keen observation that in America, the Cold War era might also be known as the age of Nixon. We want to thank three of our patrons, Colin Stroh, Phil O, and Karam Osboya. Thank you for your support. You too can support us on Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash thisamericanpresident. Our supporters on Patreon get to be part of our exclusive community and help us put out the best quality product possible. Through our patrons, we're able to access the best scholarly resources and improve our production quality. Again, just go to patreon.com slash thisamericanpresident to support us. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.